Addiction does not discriminate. We have surgeons, lawyers, every walk of life as patient base. It is not just the unsheltered individual living on the streets pushing that shopping cart. There is a good percentage of those folks where addiction is not their issue. It's underlying mental health issues. They lost their place to live. They lost their job. They had nowhere else to go and they gave up. Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy, and thanks for listening in as we talk with leaders in our community. Joining me today is April Provost. She's with Ideal Option. She's here to educate us not only on stigma, but on medically assisted treatment. Welcome, April. Thank you, Lori. I'm so excited about what we're talking about today. But before we get into stigma, why don't you tell us about Ideal Option? Ideal Option is a medically assisted treatment clinic that offers different medications for those that are suffering with substance use disorder. So we have protocols for all substances, so opiates, alcohol, methamphetamine, kratom, cannabis. It's a medical clinic that you go to like any other doctor to get prescribed with medications that are going to be used as tools for those that are wanting to either decrease, substantially decrease their use or to abstain from use of those substances altogether. So ideally, see what I did there? It's for people that are in addiction looking to get off of drugs and alcohol. So we use medications to treat those with substance use disorder, but it is not just a one pill and done. It is a tool and it is part of a recovery process. So I don't want anyone to think that, oh, I can go to ideal option and just be cured. That's not necessarily the case but it is an evidence-based tool that can be used with great success for those that are wishing to start their recovery journey. I like that you said that it's not a one and done because I think that families and people that don't understand addiction think once you stop, we're back to normal and that it is such a process. So I think people oftentimes get misled by the word treatment. There are many forms and paths of treatment. And generally speaking, most people have to explore multiple avenues to come out the other side and lead a life in recovery. Recovery is an everyday, the rest of your life job. It is not something that is completed when you completed 28 days in inpatient treatment. You're not cured. It's an ongoing process that requires people to stay engaged in that process every single day going forward. So there is no cure. There is no, you're not an addict anymore. It's a journey that lasts a lifetime and we can overcome our substance use and go on to become contributing members of society, self-sustaining. We can thrive. There is no limit to what you can become after addiction. We're seeing that more and more when people are doing these great things and then you find out they'll say, oh, well, I've been clean and sober for 10 years and, and you're like, Oh my goodness, we sort of get this stigma about addicts. And so I know that's something we really wanted to talk about. Stigma is so prevalent with addiction. It is not just in mainstream society that we face stigmas. It's even within the recovery communities. So stigma is kind of a broad stroke that encompasses, um, basically it's it's labeling, it's judgment. It is treating somebody differently because of. It is social norms. It is so many things that have corrupted 
almost our daily lives and we don't even necessarily view them as in a negative light. I remember in my years of active addiction, I would wear a lot of masks. I would try to do my best to not look like an addict. I was intentional in how I dressed. I tried to appear clean. I tried to have on makeup. I even went so far as to try and colored contacts so that I could cover up the pupil dilation. I thought I was being really stealthy about getting my drugs, using my drugs. I thought I appeared normal on the outside. I was really clumsy and far less discreet than what I wanted to believe. There is little that makeup or contacts or clothing could do to hide the sunken in dark circled eyes, the inability to even hold a regular conversation, the inability to have normal, lasting, meaningful relationships, even the the ability to take care of myself in a healthy way. My addiction eventually led me to homelessness and complete loss of the reality of, of what's normally socially acceptable. I knew I was done before I actually got clean. I knew I was ready to quit because if I didn't, I was going to end up incarcerated or dead. And part of what took so long was in part due to my lack of knowledge. I had no idea where to start. I had no idea who to ask. And I was really too afraid to ask anybody. Once I admitted I was an addict, once it was out there, all the ugliness of where my addiction had taken me would come out and I would be judged. I would be labeled and I would be defined by my addiction. And once defined as an addict, I would just never be able to shed that label. It would haunt me like a curse and it would limit me and my ability to, to have the life that I'd hoped to have when I get clean. And this fear kept me in a vicious cycle of addiction a lot longer than it should have. There is a shocking amount of people in our communities. There's just this mentality almost um, in a lot of places where once an addict, always an addict. Meaning that we stay that worst version of ourselves. We don't overcome and change our toxic traits that we had in active addiction. We stay criminals. We stay dishonest, morally corrupt, promiscuous, selfish. And that's particularly harsh on people who are like new to their recovery and, and in the beginning stages of it. They're making significant changes. And those changes aren't always visible to people that aren't really close to them. Their skin or their complexion is not fully healed. They don't have that new wardrobe yet. They are still feeling really fatigued. They have anxiety. They're struggling with conversation. Their self-image is under attack from their own minds. They don't feel comfortable in mainstream society because they don't feel worthy. They're judged on their appearance by their scars, their clothes. And in some cases, they're treated less than. They're treated like they're still the addicts. And our social standards, you know, kind of tell us that respect and trust are need to be earned. But, you know, what that doesn't always take into account for is the changes that we make in that early recovery are super significant. And while our addict minds are, of course, looking for that instant gratification, we're also putting in a lot of work. And it can be really disheartening when we're putting in these large strides and we're not seeing some amount of tangible progress. I would love to see us as a community stop making assumptions based on clothing or skin or whether they're wearing a backpack or riding a bike or if they're awkward in their communication skills. Those are all natural beginning stages of the recovery process. We have been so far out of touch with a lot of the realities that it's a scary thing. And when we're getting judged and looked at or people are avoiding us or people are saying, oh, support your recovery, just not around us go do it somewhere else. 
then there's a certain expectations of what sobriety and recovery should be. That if we don't follow certain steps or if we use different tools or our paths are less conventional, that we're not really clean or we're not really trying. This happens in both mainstream and our recovery communities. If a person is able to improve their situation, they're working towards achieving or becoming a contributing, self-supporting, law-abiding member of society, let's normalize showing some grace, some compassion, and let's stop judging. I would love to see us be supportive of those that are choosing recovery. Let's not put a label on it. Let's not put them down. Let's not humiliate them. Let's not do more harm than good. I'm not saying embrace them, bring them into your house, and they should be your friends. But I am saying let's not do them harm. Let's not ostracize them. Let's not pretend that they don't exist or react in fear if they come into our store. I believe that most of us, we want treatment. We want recovery services. The vast majority of us know someone who has struggled with or is struggling with drug addiction. And of course, we want those services for our friends, our families, our loved ones. But far fewer are okay with those services being in their bubble being in their community, near their house, near their workplace, near the parks or wherever they might go. It's the NIMBY, that not in my backyard mentality. So everyone wants the resources, but few are willing to really support them. It's imperative that we kind of start to change this narrative because recovery requires inclusion. It requires acceptance. It requires connection and that connection to community, to people, That's what we need to embrace. Recovery is a process. It's not just a 28-day stay in rehab. Inpatient facilities also need to be included in a community. They need to have access to medical facilities and pharmacies and support group meetings and groceries and all the other normal resources and services. And for those folks that they're past that inpatient stay or they've chosen to go an alternative path that didn't require an inpatient stay and they're housed or sheltered, They need that continuation of care. They need outpatient services. They need mental health services, medical services, pharmacies. Oftentimes, people are going to need services outside of the inpatient setting. So our post-treatment, those that have chosen a different path and didn't do a traditional conventional inpatient stay, they're housed or sheltered. They need a continuation of care. They need outpatient services. They need mental health services, medical services, pharmacies, and for most people are oftentimes that also includes MAT or medically assisted treatment. Medically assisted treatment is not a new concept. It was developed more than 50 years ago. And I think most people are most familiar with methadone treatment. So methadone treatment is used for opioid use disorder was the kind of the founder, the leader of the way. And that does differ from what Ideal Option does, and we've made some great strides in the medical field as far as finding alternatives to methadone, but it's still an, it's still necessary. There are some people where that is going to be a better fit for them. I know that there's a tremendous amount of stigma around medically assisted treatment centers, whether that be the traditional methadone, which is referred to as OTP, which is an opioid treatment program. Those programs require a daily dosing. That's when you think of the lines outside a treatment center, that's what we're thinking of. That's for daily dosing medications, and that would be more along the lines of a methadone clinic. Then there's what's called the OBOTs, and those are the in-office visit 
prescriptions sent weekly, biweekly, monthly check-ins. It's just like any other doctor's office. There's no lines. People schedule an appointment. They go in. They see their provider. They get a script sent to their pharmacy. And then they go on about their day. Medically assisted treatment has evidence to back it up that it does work. What Suboxone does in the brain in its partial agonist, so that it means that it hits the same receptors in the brain as a traditional opioid. However, it's only partially activating that receptor. And that partial activation reduces cravings and curtails those feelings of withdrawal. It makes a person feel normal. Now for somebody who maybe has never used an opiate, we call that opioid naive. And that would, again, be somebody who does not have any regular intake of, of an opiate medication. If that person were to take a Suboxone, they would then feel effects of extreme drowsiness, maybe a little lightheaded, maybe some foggy thinking. But for somebody who is regularly using opiates, whether that be from a pain management standpoint or a misuse standpoint, if you are consistently using opiates and you use a partial agonist like Suboxone or buprenorphine, the reaction in the brain, you are not going to get a euphoric feeling. You're not going to get high. It's going to just level it out and make you status quo and allow you to function feeling normal. I think a lot of people have some misconception that, you know, oh, they're just going to get more drugs. It's replacing one for another. Well, it's not. It's a tool that's being used to block those receptors or fill those receptors in the brain so that people can concentrate on building up the other tools that they're going to need for their long-term sobriety. Also, if you are onboarded with a buprenorphine and you try and use an opioid on top of that, you're not going to feel the effects of it because your receptor's already full. So it's not going to do anything for you. You're not going to get high. On the other side of that, you're also going to prevent a potential overdose. So somebody who is onboarded with this medication, if they use on top of it, they're reducing their ability to overdose on a prescription drug. So as we've all heard, sometimes relapses are part of somebody's recovery journey. It doesn't mean that they have lost all that work that they put in. It means they have made an error in judgment. They need to go back and reevaluate why they made that choice, but they can continue on without it becoming disruptive to their lives. And I think a lot of people have a misconception about what a relapse really means. It doesn't necessarily mean a loss of all progress. In some cases, it can mean that, but it doesn't have to. So when somebody says, yes, I had a relapse, it could have been a one-night occurrence. It could have been a weekend. It did not significantly impact their day-to-day -day life. But if continued, absolutely, it's going to potentially ruin all of the forward progress that they've made. Stigma around medications has been part of my journey working for Ideal Option and just working in the recovery community. It's something that I encounter more often than not. And it's really difficult sometimes to not internalize that. When you are in early recovery, you are trying so hard to keep doing the next right thing. Your brain chemistry is all out of whack still. You do not have the normal brain chemistry that you had just because you stopped using a substance. That can take a year to two years to really kind of go back to homeostasis. We're dealing with our brain chemistry is off. We are dealing with chronic fatigue. Oftentimes there's underlying mental health. We have this whole plethora of things that we need to work through to kind of undo that damage. It does not happen within a month or two months or even a year. So when people are saying, oh, well, you know what? You just need that 
for a month, you know, while you're in treatment and then you should just stop taking it. Well, <laughs> doesn't work that way. Dependent on, you know, how long somebody's been using. If somebody's been using for decades, maybe that treatment regimen looks like an indefinite. And if that's what it takes for them to be back on their feet and thriving in life, then who are we to judge? And really, is that any of our places to judge that? To say that having a medical clinic that specializes in these medications is going to bring more crime, more addiction, more misuse, more problems to a community is just, it's not based in fact at all. As a matter of fact, in communities where these clinics have been put in, we've seen crime reduced significantly in some places. We do not have rampant homeless addicts coming and breaking into all of the, the businesses around us. People are coming to us because they want recovery. They want treatment. They want to improve and change their lives. It is not for us to judge if they're taking this medication and that's the only way they can stay clean. That's none of our business. Let them be. If they are thriving in our communities, why does it matter? I can't understand why people take such a, a personal interest in it when it's not really influencing their life. I would like to see us embrace people who are making significant positive change in whatever that looks like. I want to see us as a community embrace somebody who stands up and has the nerve and the, the courage to stand up and say, I'm an addict and I need help because I want to change my life. Let's not shun them. Let's not hold their pasts against them. And I don't mean let's, you know, exonerate them from all consequence from the actions that they had while they were in that behavior, but let's not add to it. Let's make them feel included. Let's make them feel supported. Because without that connection to community, without that support, what have they got to, to look forward to? If they feel like, okay, I'm never going to get anywhere and I'm never going to be self-supporting and I'm never going to be part of this community and people are always going to look at me and want to cross the street, where is the incentive? They're already hurting. They're already dealing with past traumas or whatever their reasons were for using. So let's not add to that. And I love what you said, that there are so many community members out there, so many leaders that have overcome addiction and gone on to do wonderful things. I want to see more of that. Publicize that. Addiction does not have to define you and who you are if you choose to recover. There's so many things that come up for me. Number one is... I think I was one of those people because I didn't understand. So I had some fear and ignorance. And then once I began to understand how helpful this was for some people, it was the thing that gave them their life back. I started to have a different attitude. If we could think different, if we don't know, if we could be willing to learn and willing to hear the stories. The other thing that I think of too is our language. And when I think about how people, they'll see somebody, they'll say something like a judgment. They've got kids in the car. Now the kids are with that judgment. So how can we begin to change our language a little bit around this? That is absolutely 100% accurate. I can't tell you how many times I speak to people and they tell me, oh, well, that junkie's out there getting high in the parking lot, or that tweaker is too close to my car. They're burglarizing me. It's not just the mainstream society or people that are less knowledgeable. It is people in recovery saying that about them, about the still suffering addict. And 
I don't think they realize how demoralizing that can be, how judgmental that can be. I understand 100% people in active addiction are more prone to for crime. And I completely understand that. And I do not excuse that behavior in any way, shape or form. They absolutely should pay the consequences of committing a crime, 100%. They should not be using out in the open, around children, around other people. However, when we use that language, we do demoralize them and we do dehumanize them. We all should know by now that words do have meanings and words can be hurtful and harmful. How we say things and how we present them do matter. So absolutely, yes, there is a still suffering addict. There is somebody that needs our help. There is somebody that is hurting. I know it can sometimes be hard when we're looking in the face of an addict, especially one that's committing a crime, causing us bodily harm, financial harm, have done devastating things to us. It's really tough to look at that person and think that's somebody that is really hurting. Because at the end of the day, we all used for a reason and our reasons are our own. And some people's may be deemed more significant than others, but we all have had a personal traumatizing moments in our life that led us there. We're trying to forget. We're trying to cover up. We're trying to quelch our pain, our hurt, our self-loathing, our guilt, our shame. That's what oftentimes keeps us in that perpetual cycle of use. We use, we realize, oh, I don't feel anymore. I don't have to feel this pain. This is great. And then we start to go through withdrawal or we don't have any more and that pain comes up and it's like, oh, and now it's more painful. And so we use and we start that cycle. And the more we use, the more we're willing to do and become comfortable with doing to get more to cover it. And so it, it can go in this really vicious cycle and it can escalate really quickly. And at the end of the day, some people maybe are less compassionate. Maybe there are some people that are more prone or more selfish just naturally. But at the end of the day, the vast majority of people suffering in active addiction are hurting and they're just trying to cover that pain. They're just trying to mask that. They do not feel accepted. The one thing I hear a lot, and I want you to talk about this before we run out of time, people say, well, they have a choice. It seems to me like there really isn't a choice. And many of the women I work with say, I was saved by jail or I was saved by hospitalization. So I think that is a stigma also where people go, well, they're choosing it every day. I think there's a lack of compassion and understanding that it's not really a choice once your brain gets hooked. Absolutely. And I love that you brought that point up. So I'm going to run a scenario by you. And this is a, a very typical situation that I encounter. When did you start using your drug of choice? Oh, I was about 14. Who did you use with? My parent. We want to say that anyone under the age of 18 is not able to make a choice, a legal choice for themselves. So how can we hold an addict accountable who really didn't even make that choice? used with a parent and started their addiction at 14. So that's one common, two common situation. And then there are those, well, you know, you chose to pick up that first drug. So I will share a little of my story. Alcohol was very prevalent in my upbringing. It was a social norm. A lot of people think it's a social norm. But what happens is, is we have that addiction already lingering in the back of our heads. 
it escalates quickly and then it's not a big deal to maybe do some ecstasy at a party because you're in your 20s. Well, everyone experiment and then things start getting tough at home and you need something to kill that pain and you go out and you make one bad choice. You don't realize it until many years later how bad that first choice was because we get that instant gratification, that relief from that pain or whatever it is that we're trying to run from and we're hooked before we even realize we're hooked because we like that that feeling of masking that pain because we don't know how to address that pain in a healthy way. I would love to see that become a norm too, is how to address pain in a healthy way before we can trigger an addiction. And yes, it was my choice maybe to start, but it was an innocent choice. It wasn't like, oh, I want to become a methamphetamine addict or an opiate addict and, and lose everything and be homeless. And yeah, I was prescribed pain pills by a doctor. I mean, I was on some, some pain management for many years and yes, I accidentally took an extra one the first time. And I'm like, wow, this is great. This works so much better. It wasn't a choice to go out and use drugs. It was, oh, well, this is a medication and I'm taking some extra and it feels so much better. That opioid addiction took root and then that's when I discovered other substances and it wasn't as big of a leap because I was already entrenched and in a downward spiral. So when people say, oh, you choose to, well, perhaps we make misinformed or bad choice. Yes. But once that addiction switch is flicked, you are just in it. Coming out of it is excruciating. Oftentimes it does take being in jail or being locked up or being put somewhere involuntarily because it's the only way we can get some moments of clarity to make a rational decision and choose recovery. But really until the pain of that lifestyle becomes more painful than the pain we were trying to cover with it, we're not going to be able to make that choice. And I think that's what people need to understand is, is that the pain we're covering with the drugs, that life has to get more painful than what we're choosing to try and cover. There's one more thing that you brought up that I, I would like you to speak to is it's really easy to look at, to drive through Seattle and say, those drug addicts. But the truth is, that's only one part. We have doctors and people that are working. We have working class citizens that are addicts. Addiction does not discriminate. We have surgeons, lawyers, every walk of life as patient base. It is not just the unsheltered individual living on the streets pushing that shopping cart. There is a good percentage of those folks where addiction is not their issue. It's underlying mental health issues. They lost their place to live. They lost their job. They had nowhere else to go and they gave up. To just look at somebody and take it at face value and then label them with that is a really dangerous thing to do. All of the misconceptions end up ultimately coming from is that we're looking at something without knowing all of the facts. And we really need to take that into consideration. All most people want is that connection and to feel wanted, needed, and loved. At the end of the day, that's what we all strive for. When we don't get it, we look for other ways to supplement that feeling. And many times, many of us turn to a substance to generically give us that rush of serotonin, endorphins, whatever we're looking for, that's a release for us because we're not getting it. And it's maybe it's our poor choices of why we weren't getting it in the beginning. But again, education around healthy coping skills is so important. And I think that's what's really coming to light through this, this epidemic. Instead of just trying to put a Band-Aid or stop what's already happened, 
How can we prevent it from happening? Well, giving people more coping skills, the ability to be okay with being vulnerable and sharing our traumas and asking for help with them before we have to turn to masking them. I hear more compassion, less judgment. Absolutely. And that in no way exonerates people from doing harm, regardless of their addiction status. It's not exonerating, but we do need to understand that there is something that's driving that. And if once they do make that choice that, okay, it's more painful living this way than it was before I started using, let's embrace those folks and not say once a junkie, always a junkie to say that you can move past the worst moments of your life and don't let those worst moments define who you are or where you can go. There is help and there is hope. There is absolutely both and we all deserve it. We all deserve a good quality life. And let's not strip that away from people because of a poor decision, have them pay for their consequences and then support them to have that better life. How can we find out more information on Ideal Option? Well, you can go to our website, idealoption.net. You can also call 877-522-1275. Again, that number is 877-522-1275. And speak to one of our lovely customer service reps. You can also speak with nurse care teams, financial assistants, with getting enrolled with insurance if you do not already have them. Or you can ask to speak with one of our financial officers that can help you explore some other options. Either way, we would be more than happy to see you and start you on your recovery journey. We can also provide you with resources and referrals to whatever other treatment or barriers you may be facing. So as you've heard from April, Ideal Option is a leader in outpatient medication-assisted treatment for addiction. So they have a big event coming up, and we're going to tell you, they have a big event coming up called Recovery Starts Today. They're going to be partnering with Holman Recovery Center, Snohomish County Health Department, Marysville Police Department, Evergreen Health Monroe, Providence Catholic Community Services, A1 Lifeline, Washington 211, Sound Pathways, and the Handout Project to help people in Marysville, Washington, get started in recovery. Now, the event is called... Recovery starts today. It takes place Friday, February 24th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's at the Ideal Option Clinic in Marysville at 1617 Grove Street. Here's what you can expect. It's a place people could surrender illicit substances and paraphernalia for safe disposal, learn about community resources, complete an intake, and if desired, see a provider immediately to start medication-assisted treatment, for nearly all patients, costs are covered by Medicaid or private insurance. For more information, email hello at idealoption.net. April, thank you so much. I feel a little more educated <laughs> so that maybe I won't be as judgmental. And I hope that, that that will be true, that people will start to see this in a different light and have a little more compassion. Absolutely. I thank you for your time and for having me come on. This is a near and dear um, topic to me. And I just... I can't wait to continue to advocate for change and change the narrative. I'm Lori Hardy, and thanks for listening in today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community. 